Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. here from Philippians chapter 1. Before that, I forgot to tell you, I do serve on the coffee team. That's right. (laughs) Okay, starting from the latter part of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, for that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ because of my coming to you again. You may be seated. Thank you, Naomi. Appreciate you reading. Man, there's some sore guys running around here today. We had a men's retreat this weekend, and and some of these young guns are rough. Uh, but we had a good time. We laughed it up. Had a good had, had a lot of fun. And uh, no ladies, we've got a ladies retreat coming up as well. So you may want to sign up for that. Uh, as we dive into Philippians, uh, just was thinking this week about how we like to plan for everything. Uh, any, how many of you are, would consider yourself planners? There's usually two categories of planners, those who actually plan and those who think they plan. And, and depending on how, your opinion of what I just said, probably tells you which side of that you're on. Uh, but we, we make lots of plans in our world. We make plans for college. Uh, we make plans for working out. Any of you got a workout plan? Yeah, that's more of you doing that. I know that. You just don't want to be that person right now, right? Uh, we make plans for working out. We don't stay on them, but we make plans for them. Uh, we make career plans. Uh, it's, we're heading to spring break, so a lot of us are making or looking forward to vacation plans right now uh, and getting ready to, to live those out. We make retirement plans or we feel guilty about the fact that they're not as far along as we want them to be. Um, but do we plan for our spiritual lives? Isn't that interesting? We tend to plan for the things that are most important in our life. But do we plan for how it is that we're going to grow spiritually? We, we don't. We seem to think that somehow it's going to be different than everything else. That somehow God's just going to like zap us and we're going to mature spiritually and things are going to take off. And yet, when I read the Bible, there's all these things that are like, choose you this day, whom you will serve. 
And these things that say we have a role to play in our own development, in our own progress and joy in the faith. And so that's what we want to talk about today is what does it look like for us to grow? What does it look like for us to seek to advance spiritually? And so we're going to look at what Paul has to say about that in Philippians 1. And he starts off in this passage and he says, yes, and I will rejoice. Uh, you notice the verse right before that. What does he say? He says, in that I rejoice. There's a lot of rejoicing going on for this guy. Uh, this is actually like, I think the fourth time in chapter one that he talks about joy. And so joy just shows up over and over and over. And this is kind of a hinge from the, the first part of, the, of chapter one to the second part of chapter one. It's going to turn. He's going to start, go from saying, well, here's where I've been to talking about to, to the Philippians of the church at Philippi about where they are. And this is kind of where it begins to shift. And what Paul's going to say is, I rejoice in uh, God's work in the present, but I'm also looking forward to God's work in the future. That there's something out there ahead that I also can look forward to. And so he says, yes, I will rejoice. Um, but it's kind of surprising and unexpected because Paul's in prison. Uh, you know, it, it's hard for us to rejoice when things don't go exactly the way we want them to be. Like if I get a little bit behind on a meal, I start to not, it's hard for me to rejoice. Right? Like if, I, if, if my kids get grounded, they, there's not a lot of joy coming out. But Paul's in prison and he's rejoicing. In fact, another time in Paul's life, he was in prison and he was with another guy named Silas and they were just enjoying themselves. They were singing and praying and uh, so much that through a series of circumstances, a jailer goes, how do I get saved? Because I think he was looking going, I don't know what that is, but I probably need some of that. Um, because he recognized that he needed some joy. And uh, do you realize that joy is a foundational element of the Christian life? I mean, Paul's going to talk about joy through this whole book. And what he, I think, is trying to get our attention, help us understand, is that joy is essential. Joy is this key component of the Christian life. It's a normal byproduct of Christian faith. That if we believe, and if we believe the things in this book are true, there ought to be joy that just comes out of our lives. And yet we don't always experience that. I remember uh, Chris Clark was telling me he had an old boss uh, years ago, one of his first jobs that he, Chris had come into work in the morning and his boss would go, man, how you doing? He'd be like, I'm good. He's like, well, someone should tell your face that. You know, I just, there's some reality. Like, he's, you say you're good, but like, I don't see it. Like, I'm not seeing any joy coming out of you. Uh, teenagers, parents, can you, can you relate? You're just like, dude, what are you grumpy about? He's like, I don't even know. You know, like I just, I just feel like I need to complain about something. Uh, like I don't know what it is, but we cultivate that. We find ways not to be joyful, but we need to, we need to be joyful. I think even in our world, joy can look so strange that people don't know what to do with it. Because we live in a world that says, whatever you feel, you ought to get to live out. You ought to get to do. Uh, that, that your circumstances are supposed to all go just the way you want them to be. That you have rights to demand happiness in any situation. And anytime those things are not happening and someone's joyful, you think, well, they probably need therapy. Like if everything's not going the way you want to, but you still have joy, something's wrong with you. But in, in terms of Christian faith, there's this natural joy that ought to come out of us that isn't based on on our circumstances and on things going on in our life. This weekend on our men's retreat, uh, one of the guys uh, at the end of the retreat said, I think I laughed more this week in, in the last 24 hours than I have in a really long time. 
So apparently all you need for some guys to have a good time is some hot dogs, some you know, bruises on their shins, and, uh, and you know, just a little, bit of, a little bit of space to enjoy being together as the people of God, leaning in and talking about good stuff. And um, all kinds of good stuff uh, happened this weekend, and we just had a really good time. Uh, but I know some of you aren't buying it. Like I know there's just some of you that are like, nope, not going to do it. Uh, you know, it's interesting, Paul later in this book says, rejoice, and it's a command. Like he literally gives you an order from God, rejoice. And he goes, and again, I say rejoice. He's like, for those in the back, I just want to make sure you heard it, rejoice. Like you're, you're being ordered by God to rejoice. And it's not just like to put a smile, put lipstick on a pig, right? Like it's not just like put, put a smile on ugly stuff. It's that you actually have a reason to rejoice. And I know I'm having fun with this, but do you realize that joy for Christians comes from a deeper place? In fact, in verse 25, what Paul says is that his whole purpose in staying on the earth was to work for other Christians' progress and joy in the faith. And in the faith means in the gospel in the truth of who God is and the truth of what we believe. And he says, that's my purpose is that I'm here to, to aid your growth and to aid your joy. Which is a pretty significant statement, right? And do you realize that joy for us comes from the person of God? You know, Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And it's kind of a strange phrase if you're not, if you're not used to that. It, when it says fruit, it's talking about the produce. So the, the, the you're, you've got something in your life and that root is going to produce something in you. So the Spirit being present in your life, God's Spirit is going to produce something in you. And what does it say in Galatians 5 that it produces? Well, the first is love. And that makes sense because Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So it makes sense that if the Spirit of God is present in you, it's going to produce love in you. Do you know what the second thing in that list is that the Spirit produces in our lives? Joy. It's love, joy. So friends, if joy is not present in our life, there's something going on in our spirit. That God's Spirit isn't isn't, isn't having the freedom to produce what he wants to produce in us because we're cultivating something else. So here's what I, I want us to see in this passage that I think is important today is that joy is theological. Joy is based in our belief. Joy is, is a doctrinal commitment that we have based on the truth of who God says that we are and who we are in relation to him. And so if we understand what, what the word of God says about us, that God delights to make himself known to you, that God searches the face of the earth looking for anyone whose heart belongs to him, and that God sent his only son because he loved you to rescue you and redeem you, to give you new life because he loves you, there ought to be joy that is there for each of us. Because... The, th the fact is that God's grace is so insa insanely hysterical that you should never really recover from it. Like we in our sin racked up such a debt, we could never pay the bill. And like you look at it and it just goes. Like you could literally count up pages in, in, in your credit card bill of what you owe because of your sinfulness. And God goes, I got that. Think about a debt that you, you know it's insurmountable. And you look at it and you think it would take me years, it would take me a lifetime, there's no way I could ever pay that off. 
And God goes, well, let me write the check for you. And he sent his son and Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. And the only proper response to that is joy. It's just like, are you kidding me? That's it? I just trust him, you did it, you paid it all for me? Joy is the natural response. In the Roman Empire, Caesar's going around making people bow to him and he's making him call him Lord. And so they're, they're having to treat Caesar like he's a godlike creature and bow before this broken, fallen ruler in, in Rome. And yet Jesus comes and he doesn't come demanding something. He comes and it says that he did not regard, and we're going to look at this in, in Philippians 2 in, in a couple weeks, but Jesus is the king above all kings. He's the creator. Nero and, and Augustus and the other Caesars don't exist apart from Jesus. And yet Jesus is going to come and it says he didn't hold his position as God to be something to be grabbed hold of and clung on to and demanded, but he emptied himself and he became a man and not just any man, he made himself lower than the Caesar. He made himself lower than all the other people. He said, I will become a servant of all. And in my humility, I, I will not only humble myself to serve, but I will die you know what the most awful death in Rome was? The one they hated the most? It was crucifixion. And at the approval of the Romans and the, hand, the, the instigation of the Jews, Jesus was crucified on a cross. And in dying on a cross, he suffered the, the most despicable death in the eyes of the Romans. And though he was God, he says, I will, I will take the worst death in order to bring about life for you. He was a mockery to the Romans, but the joke was on them, right? Because Jesus, when they pulled him off the cross and they put him in that empty tomb, he went in and he punched death right in the face. And he stood up in his resurrection and he walked out victorious. And, and what Satan thought was gonna work to the demise of Jesus, Jesus stomped on his face and said, no, this is my victory. And so what was death became life. What was dark became light. What was, uh, what was awful became joyful. And he rejoiced in that. And so uh, the, the fact is that sin was defeated. Shame was sent away and we were given freedom in return. So he said, let me take your shame. I'll give you a little freedom. It's a pretty good change, isn't it? You know what the right response to that is? Joy. Like we should be excited, we should experience. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that good news? Think of the thing you're most ashamed for of in the world. And then hear the word of the Lord saying, because of Jesus, there's no condemnation. There's no shame. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. You are a new creation. We have new life, forever life, and abundant life because of Jesus. Friends, the gospel is the root of real joy. Everything pivots on Jesus. This is why we, we get so excited in the life, uh, the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is enough for a lifetime of joy. That, so that's really was where Paul starts. And so friends, if you're a Christian, you have joy. Some of you just gotta tell your face about it. Uh, you gotta let it out. You gotta lean in and go, man, I believe this to be true. And if that's true, then the spirit of God is present in me because Jesus didn't leave me alone. He said, I will send a helper and the helper will be with you and the spirit will be with you. And the, that spirit produces in you love, but also joy. And so we need to be people of joy.
Uh, then Paul's going to go on, and he's going to do something a little weird because uh, he talks about joy, but then he immediately says, I will rejoice, and then starts talking about death, uh, which is a little strange. You know, the college buddy and I used to joke when we were in college, we used to say, well, I'm not going to die. Then even if I do, and I don't think our mothers like that comment a whole lot. Um, and, and it's not a good thing to probably say just to try to justify stupid actions that you may be committing as a college student, uh, which is a little bit how we used it. But I do want to say, like, the logic wasn't all bad. Uh, because there is, a, there is some truth to the logic of what and Paul's going to go on. And he's going to say that the reason I rejoice is because I'm going to experience the deliverance. I'm either going to experience the deliverance of getting out of prison, or I'm going to get, experience the deliverance of getting out of this world and going to be with Jesus. And both of those are good options. And so that's kind of where Paul is going to go with this passage and saying, I'm going to experience goodness no matter what happens. Uh, whatever happens, there will be joy on the other side. Uh, and so for Paul, he's going to set up this, uh, this kind of dichotomy between life and death. He's going to set up two different sides. And I want us to unpack that just a little bit. So look in verse 19. Uh, Paul lists two things that he says are going to help him through his ordeal. Paul's deliverance, first, he says, takes place through the prayers of the church. And then secondly, through the help of the Spirit of Jesus. And here's what's going to be fascinating that we see in a minute. Paul, actually, in the way he connects these, connects those two ideas, that the, the, the prayers of the church and the Spirit of Jesus are connected in some way. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But the prayers of the church, it's always a strange thing for us to, to wrestle with how our prayers work. Like if God knows everything, he knows all the needs, and he knows the things that ought to happen in the world, why do we have to pray? And, and the, the simple answer is that this is the means by which God sovereignly ordained to work. And so God said that, that our prayers are going to pull the lever that are going to move him to action. And so in his sovereign plan, that he, he's agreed that our play, prayers are effective. And so the prayers of a righteous man are, are, effective, are, are effective, it says in, in James. Um, so somehow through our prayers, we actually make a difference in others. And it's fascinating that Paul says, my deliverance, my care, my ability to persevere in the middle of the situation is going to happen because of the prayers of the people that he's writing a letter to. Your prayers are going to help deliver me. But it's also the help of the Spirit of God. And so he talks about the Spirit of God. Um, Paul says, I'm, I'm dependent upon the prayers of believers, but what the, what the prayers connect is the supply of the Spirit, that the Spirit shows up and at work in my life. And ultimately, it's the help of the Spirit that the, the word that's used there could be furnish or provide or give or grant or supports the things that he needs. And so the Spirit's at work to make these things happen. Notice that it, it's not that the... the he didn't have the Spirit. It's not that the Spirit somehow left Paul and wasn't there. It's just that somehow through the prayers of the people, the Spirit is going to work and bring about good in Paul's life. Have you ever thought that your prayers are connected to the spiritual good in other people's lives? It's, it's something we have to take on faith. Because sometimes there's a conundrum we look at and think, man, I don't, I don't know why God depends on my prayers to decide what he's going to do. And it's not that he's not sovereign, he's not sovereignly acting. But he's chosen to work through the prayers of people. And we get to be a part. We get to play a part in other people's spiritual good. We get to actually help enable their progress and joy in the faith by praying for them. Uh, which is pretty remarkable. And so as you think about this, it literally says, through the prayer of you all and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus, I'm going to experience the good of being delivered in this situation. And so in some mysterious way, the Spirit of Jesus is working through the prayers of the people. Now, do you understand, uh, I think, the importance of church community? 
this, this idea that, that shows up throughout this passage, he talks about quantity or fellowship or partnership, and he's talking about the, the spiritual community that somehow we are interconnected. We are interdependent upon one another, that God never intended any of us to walk alone. But we were meant to be, it's why he calls it the body of Christ or the family of God or the people of God or a new nation. Or We're a people that's meant to be connected to one another. And so we pray for one another and the spirit of God works within, our, within us to bring about good. Not sure what's going on with my mic there. I'll just let it go. All right, I'm press on. Um, bottom line though, God calls his church to love one another and a willingness to pray for one another and to seek the good of others. Um, and to pray not just for our physical needs and our circumstantial needs, but as Paul said, to pray for our, our spiritual needs and our deliverance and our goodness there. So verse 20 says, my eager expectation and hope is that I'm going to be delivered through this. This isn't just some vague wishfulness. He's saying I'm praying with kind of a hopeful expectation that God's going to work through this situation. So I'm going to be of full courage because Jesus is going to be honored, uh, whether in my life or in my death, no matter what happens, Jesus is going to be glorified. And so he's going to trust in God's work in that situation. So look at verse 21. Here's kind of the, the most famous verse in this passage. Paul says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so he sets up this dichotomy between two different things. And what he's, what he's ultimately going to point us to is this kind of passion of his that Jesus is the center of everything. Christ is all. Christ is the thing that drives every, everything in Paul's life. He's describing, though, this tension he, believe, he, he experiences between living and dying. Now, any of you fans of Shawshank Redemption? Movie, one of my favorite movies. A famous line in there just says, get busy living or get busy dying, right? It's like, whatever you do, you should do it to the full. But, but you need to be full of life. And until you die, I mean, you might as well live. Like really live. And that's part of what I think that idea comes from is what Paul says here is to live as Christ, to die as gain. Now, he's not expressing some kind of death wish. Uh, when you're like, to die as gain sounds like a strange comment to our ears. It's not really saying something that he just wants to be done with his troubles or he wants to get rid of this world or he wants to move on. What he's saying is, if I die, I gain Jesus. I get to go be with Jesus. And if Jesus is the most important thing in your life, then to be with Jesus is the most wonderful thing that could happen. And so he says, to die means I gain Christ. And death's not merely some kind of escape. So I wanna give you just a list of the contrast that Paul makes. And I think we've got a slide that'll show you these. But you notice those two, two categories, it says to live and to die. Uh, to live, what he says means, to live is Christ. Means that I get to walk with Christ, to live for Christ, to, uh, to, to work for Christ. But to die means I get to gain the presence of Christ. I get to go immediately into his presence. And that is, he's going to go on and say very much better. And so uh, to stay and to live, he says, means fruitful labor for me. Uh, what's labor? It's work. He said, if I, if I stay here, then I'm going to work and produce good things for Christ while I'm here on this earth. But if I die, then he says, that's going to mean being personally with Jesus. Uh, to live, he says, is more necessary for you, but to die is far better for me. Do you see the difference of what Paul's trying to say? It's like, man, if, it, if I just have my druthers, I'd go be with Jesus. And so that would be far better for me, but I know that God's not calling me yet, and so I'm going to stay here. And in staying here and in staying alive, that means I'm going to, I'm going to work for you. 
I'm going to care for other people. I'm going to invest in them. And that's why Paul, uh, what Paul wants us to understand. Now, why is he going on about this tension in the middle of Philippians? What's he trying to do in this book? Because I know that can, you kind of wonder, well, why is, why is Paul bringing this, this kind of a conversation up? Well, he's going to go on and actually say, I'm trying to set an example for you. He's making an important point in this letter. In fact, if you look past chapter 1 to chapter 2, he's going to begin to tell us about Jesus. And he's saying, what did Jesus do? Though Jesus was, uh, was in a place of perfect comfort in heaven with his father, what did Jesus do? He left heaven and he came to earth. He emptied himself. Um, he, left, he, he left the comfort and worked for the good of others. In Philippians 2, 3, it says, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying, look, for me, if it was just like what I want, I would go be with Jesus, but it's not what I want. I'm going to stay here, and that's more necessary for you and for your good. God's going to leave me on this earth, and I'm going to work for your progress and joy in the faith. Why? Well, because I'm a follower of Jesus. What did Jesus do? He left the comfort of heaven and, and thought about not just his own interests, but the interests of others, and he came and brought about salvation for us. And so you have this mind like Jesus in yourselves. That you, might not, that you might consider others to be more significant than you and you might consider their interests and not just your own interests. Get to verse chapter three, what Paul's gonna say. He's gonna say, brothers, join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in them. So Jesus lived this way. I'm living this way. You should follow that example and live this way too. It means that we're to consider the needs of others. We're to think about them. And for Paul, all that goes back to a total devotion to Christ and to his gospel. Friends, our world elevates personal freedom and individual rights above all other ideals. And so the, the, this world that we live in is not a very friendly environment for the kind of thing Jesus is teaching us to do and calling us to do. It's not going to be natural for us to do those things. But what our world says is that you should look, to, you should look for your own interests that you should fulfill your interests, that you should get whatever you want and you should be able to get it right away. But the key to everything for Paul is to live as Christ and to die as game because the highest, the highest value is to, is to be with Jesus and to live for Jesus. Uh, too often for us, uh, you know, I've got uh, another little slide here I wanna show you. Let me ask you this question. If you were to fill in this blank, how would you fill it in? Paul says, for me to live as Christ. But for many of us, the fact is we, we tend to add things to that. We say, well, for me to live is, um, is, is Christ plus work or plus entertainment or plus something else. Or maybe we don't even include that as a plus. We just replace Christ with something else. And so we think of to live as work, to live. For me to live is family. For me to live is sex. For me to live as money, for me to live as margaritas. Um, there's a whole segment of our world that's true of, right? Um, for me to live as popularity or comfort, whatever it is you would put in that blank is the thing that is a rival to Christ's place in your life. And the thing about all those is they're going to give you a little bit of joy, but it's not going to be lasting joy. It's not going to be forever joy. It's going to be momentary fleeting joy that's going to dissipate like a cloud and be gone. Only Christ is going to give you deep joy and forever joy. And so for, 
uh, for Paul as we think about kind of where where do we go with this? It's that nothing. It's an understanding that nothing else is going to bring lasting joy in both life and death in Jesus. And Paul says, if that's true, then I'm going to build my whole life on it. So for me to live as Christ and to die is to go be with Christ. And so that's even better. And everything revolves around this idea. So in verse 25, what we're going to see is Paul says, so I'm trusting that either I'm going to be delivered straight to be with Jesus, which is really good for me, or I'm going to stay here and be delivered out of prison to work for your good. And that's good for you. And that's also going to bring me joy because God will be honored in that. So verse 25, look at it, it says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. So two things, he says, I'm going to remain, why? For your progress and your joy. Uh, Paul says, that's why I exist. That's why I'm here. I'm here for your growth, for your advancement, and for your joy. And in those two things, when he talks about progress, it means kind of the quality of their spiritual life, the fact that they are, it's the same term that in verse 12, he talked about the advance of the gospel, meaning more people are trusting the gospel. Here he's talking about the advance of the gospel in your own life. So I'm here to see the gospel, not just advance and new people trusting uh, the truth or the good news about Jesus, but I want to see the gospel advance so that you trust Jesus more deeply in your own heart that it's advancing in terms of its ter- the territory it takes in your own life. And then joy, joy highlights not just the quality of their, of their life, but the quality of their experience of the spiritual life. That is, is, is Christ alive in you in a way that is producing joy? Because if it's not, then you're missing out. You're, you're doing something wrong. That's, that's when religiosity starts to creep in. When we start to move in a direction of, uh, of Christ being used as a weapon to hurt someone or to keep someone down or to bring about shame or to bring, around, bring about something else, that, that's when we've moved in a different direction. What Paul says is, no, the church doesn't exist for your sorrow, for your shame, for our, your limitation. The church exists for your joy. It's for, for freedom. Christ has set us free. And so there's goodness that takes place in our coming to Christ. And Paul says, in that, I want to see you progress. I want to see Christ hold in your life advance so that you experience more joy. Um, For Paul to live was being on mission for Christ. So friends, I want you to know for us as a church that everything we do, we want it to be for your progress and joy. So when we get up and talk about small groups, it's for your progress and joy. When we, talk about, uh, when we talk about serve teams, it's for your progress and joy. When we talk about serving at Restore OKC in our city, it's for your progress and joy. When we talk about loving your neighbor as yourself, it's for your progress and joy. This is what everything, this needs to drive everything about who we are as a people. That everything we do, like Paul says, everything, the reason why the church exists is for your progress and joy. And some of you aren't growing because you aren't leaning into those things. And so you're not learning to love the gospel. You're not seeing the advance of the gospel in your heart and in your life because you're chasing after other things. And so I think Paul's calling us to say, for me to live is, and some of us need to take that blank and take something out of it, put Jesus back in it so that he takes the center place in our lives. Now, if you want to see the gospel advance, to see the progress in our heart, it means that we're learning to rely on Christ in everything. 
We're learning to trust him with every area of our life. We learn to follow him and the things he calls us to do. We learn to invest in the things that he's invested in. The scriptures talk about uh, the fact that some of us need to mature. We need to move on from kind of mother's milk to eating the meat of the deep stuff of God. And so there's this progress and growth that ought, that, that's out there for you. And, and we, need to, we need to move into that. And for some of us, and God's calling us, I think, up to, to begin to grow and to mature, to progress. And Paul says, that's why I'm here and what I wanna work, what, what I wanna work towards. So uh, what do we do with this lesson? Well, the first is, man, let's, let's advance. Let's progress, let's see, experience the progress and joy of the faith. So let's do the things that, that God's calling us to do. Let's live in those. And a good place to start is to do what Paul said, which is to make Christ the center and say, man, for me to live is all about Jesus. And for me to die is to go and be with Jesus. But Christ is at the center of all of it. And so that, that begin is the beginning place for everything that we do. I think this text also gives us some, some direction for kind of where to go. What are some practical things we can do to live this out? I think the second is that we're to help others progress and joy in the faith. Um, do you realize that as the church, we're connected to one another? Um, and so that means that the church is never a building. The church is never an event we attend. The church is a people. We are the church. In fact, just, would you just say that out loud with me? Would you say, we are the church? We are the church. Now, why don't you say it again like you mean it? All right, we are the church. We are the church. So when we get a building, you know what's gonna be true? Say it again, we are the church. We are the church whether we're gathered, we're the church whether we're scattered, we're the church whether we own a building, we're the church whether we get to come in and set up a school and make it our building. But, but the church is a people, and it's a people that are connected, and so we together are the church, and the church is something that we are, that we are to do in terms of relying on one another, bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another, and so uh, you look at what Paul said, he says you're, to the church at Philippi, he says, your prayers sustain me, your prayers are part of my deliverance, and so we pray for one another. Friends, not just for the physical needs, not just for the circumstances of someone's life, so often that's what we pray for, but we pray for the progress and joy of one another because we're interdependent and we're to count, we're to, we're to count on one another. So part of our, our hope as a church is that we see more and more people owning the mission of the church. That if we understand that we are the church, then that means it's the church's mission is our mission that it's not something farmed out to a few people, it's not something farmed out to the spiritual elite, but that everyone who's a part of the church is, own, is an owner of the mission of the church. That means that just as Paul said, I'm here um, to work hard for your progress and joy in the faith, that means that we're to work hard for one another's progress and joy in the faith. It means we exist for one another. Um, would you do me a favor, just look at your neighbor real quick and just say, I'm here for you. Now, I want you to look for someone that's not in your immediate family that's in this room and say, I'm here for you. <laughs> you see, that, that's church. That's the picture that the New Testament gives of what the church is, is about. It's a people that God has brought together. And because he's brought us together, it means we're here for one another. It means we're, we, we exist to help one another. That means you are here for the person next to you's progress and joy in the faith. 
Have you ever thought about that? That when you walk in this room and you sit down in this deal, you look down the road from you and say, I am here to see your progress and joy in the faith. And that means that everything we do is a part of that. So when you give to the church, you give to see the progress and joy of faith of other people. When you, when you serve at a door out here as a greeter and you smile, you let joy show up on your face and you smile and welcome someone to church, you're doing it for their progress and joy in the faith. When you set up a pipe and drape in this room, when you come and set up communion, it means you're doing those things for joy, their progress and joy in the faith. When you serve in kids, it's for those little people's progress and joy in the faith. When you do it with students, it's for those crazy kids, progress and joy in the faith. And when you go to Restore OKC and you serve on a mission trip, and the reason we call you those is because we wanna see your progress and joy in the faith. And we wanna see your gifts and your, your, your grace, God's grace at work in you to be used for other people's progress and joy in the faith. That's why we're here. That's what we're about. You wanna be a part of a church like that? where everyone exists for one another, yes. where you can count on the person next to you, yes. where they're not all about their own interests, but they're willing to say, you're more significant than I am and I care about your interests. I wanna see your experience of Christianity to be joyful. And I wanna see the faith of Christ take root in your heart and advance so that more and more of the territory of your soul and your life are owned by him for the goodness of others, but also for your joy. And friends, it's all ultimately about Jesus. So as long as we live, we do so for Christ. As long as we, we live, we do so with Christ. The Spirit is in us. As long as we, we live, we do so to delight in Christ, to enjoy Him. And in, when we die, we go be with Him. Christ is all. That's what we're about. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as the people of Christ, that we would, that we would look like, that we would look like Jesus. That we would not regard our importance as something to be held onto and exalted, but we lay it down. That we'd be humble. We would consider others' interests as more important than our own. That we would love well, so that they might experience progress and joy. And Father, I know that can feel like a heavy task or burden to bear if we ourselves don't know the grace of Christ and the joy that is ours in him. So Father, first, would you make us love Jesus? Would you remind us of his grace, of the forgiveness of our sins, of the fact that there is now no condemnation, there's no shame, but there is freedom, there's forgiveness, and there is life forevermore because of Christ. So Father, make us joyful. Make us grateful and then make us effective in serving one another. Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.